from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos. This is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 21, The Return of Godzilla. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm nathan marchand and i'm brian scherschel and in today's episode we are starting the heisei series of godzilla films with the return of godzilla the original japanese version of what was later known as godzilla 1985 yes we're doing this version first and then uh we're doing the other movie uh, after this episode next week. Yep, just like we did with Gojira and Godzilla King of the Monsters. Because, because they're so different, obviously, in case uh, anybody that doesn't know, there's a huge difference. So uh, what we're going to be doing with this episode is uh, catching up on some stuff that happened before this movie was made, and then we'll be uh, catching up on doing a lot of other work, and we're going to move forward. Because we have uh, we had some years in between these movies, finally. A nine-year gap. So, yeah, so one movie a year for almost one year movie for one movie a year for a very long time. Oh yeah. And so <laughs> and finally we're back nine years later. I'm really excited to do this movie though. This is such a huge one, really really huge one. And so our episode, our related topics for this podcast are the acceleration of the Cold War, NATO's able archer exercise, Korean Airlines Flight 007. And the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. What we're going to do, since this movie is really related to a lot of the issues that we're going to be discussing in part three, we're going to do the more, uh, like the, all the political analysis in part three, and then we're going to do more of the rest of it in uh, part two. And so we'll be catching up on the politics after we, we do our, our standard discussion of the movie. All right, Brian, with that, let's get to our first film description of the Heisei era. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a ferocious force of nature. It's never stated if he is the original Godzilla or another member of the same species. He seeks nuclear energy to consume by attacking a Soviet submarine and a Japanese nuclear power plant, but he attacks Tokyo with no apparent motivation. Guromaki is an intrepid reporter who finds the hard-working fisherman Hiroshi Okumura aboard the Yahatamaru and tries to break the story, only to have it censored by the government. Hiroshi's intelligent and loving sister, Naoko, is an intern working for Dr. Hayashida. The three of them later assist with research to stop Godzilla. The brilliant Dr. Makoto Hayashida is a scientist studying Godzilla because his parents died in the 1954 attack. The shrewd Prime Minister Mitamura finds himself pressured from both the United States and the Soviet Union to allow the use of nuclear weapons. The human and kaiju plotline intermix is high. For the most part, the human's actions are connected to Godzilla, and they are frequently affected by him. The JSDF attacks Godzilla with fighter jets, tanks, rocket launchers, and assault rifles, but Godzilla destroys them all. Hyper-laser cannons are ineffective against him. A floating fortress called the Super-X attacks Godzilla using flares and cadmium missiles, which render him unconscious. He's revived by an electrical storm generated by an atmospheric nuclear blast and destroys the Super-X. 
The problem is solved when Dr. Hayashida activates his magnetic transmitter, which attracts Godzilla to the mouth of Mount Mihara. Bombs are detonated to create an eruption, and Godzilla falls into the volcano. The screenplay by Shuichi Nagaharo, which was heavily revised from several previous scripts by other writers, is a relatively simple story with a few small subplots. The film was given a healthy budget of $6.25 million. Special effects director Teruyoshi Nakano, with his final G-film, produced what he said was his best work in the genre. While employing traditional methods such as suitmation, animation, and miniatures, he also built a 16-foot robotic Godzilla and a life-size replica of Godzilla's foot to be used in some shots. Godzilla was redesigned to resemble the 1954 original and include elements that denoted sadness. This was the first film where stuntman Kenpachiro Satsuma played Godzilla. This film returns to its roots with a dark, often bleak tone. It depicts extraordinary events in a realistic setting, albeit with minor sci-fi elements. Since this is essentially a remake of the original Gojira with elements of Rodan, it isn't a very experimental film. This film reinforces the style of the 1954 original with its apocalyptic imagery, anti-nuclear themes, nationalistic politics, and often poetic storytelling. While the original film's story was firmly entrenched in the occupation era, this time the story is firmly entrenched in the Cold War era. This was the culmination of many attempts made by producer Tomiyuki Tanaka, among others, since the late 1970s to revive the Godzilla franchise. Tanaka wanted to get away from Godzilla's anthropomorphic hero persona, so the film was written as a sequel to 1954's original Gojira. The movie was intended to appeal to an adult kaiju audience familiar with the original classic while serving as a jumping-on point for newcomers. When released in Japan on December 15, 1984, it grossed a reasonable $11 million and sold 3.2 million tickets, making it the most popular Godzilla film since 1966's Ebira Horror of the Deep. The film was substantially altered by New World Pictures when released stateside eight months later. Scenes were trimmed or deleted, and new scenes were filmed and inserted, lessening the political content and radically changing the tone. Despite this, it is 16 minutes shorter than the Japanese cut. This version was so drastically different, we'll be addressing it in our next episode. Japan finds itself caught between the United States and the Soviet Union, who are both pressuring the nation to allow the use of nuclear weapons to kill Godzilla. The Japanese government enacts a media blackout on all news stories related to the destruction of the Yahatamaru, but they later reveal everything to the public. Japan unveils a secretly developed defense weapon, the Super X. Both the United States and the Soviet Union have orbital nuclear platforms from which they can launch missiles. Godzilla attacks a Soviet submarine, causing an international incident. Japan's nuclear plants attract Godzilla to the mainland. The most potent anti-nuclear sentiment since the original Gojira is expressed throughout the film. It indicts not only nuclear weapons, but possibly nuclear power plants. Prime Minister Mitamura is presented as a hero for standing up to the Americans and Soviets in favor of Japan's principles. This is also shown by Goro when he disregards the media blackout to tell Naoko about her brother. Dr. Hayashida admits that he first studied Godzilla to avenge his parents' deaths during the 1954 rampage, but he now sympathizes with the creature. He later states that when nature is out of balance, monsters appear, which means Godzilla is a sign of coming end times for humanity. An almost nihilistic helplessness in the face of nature's fury pervades the film. Godzilla is presented as a tragic creature and perhaps as a victim of the nuclear age at the end. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film in this week's episode. So, Brian, what's your take on this one?
it is one of my absolute favorite Godzilla movies ever. Which is saying a lot. And it's And I like almost all of these. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because this version, the, the original Japanese version, is the most recent one to be brought over to the United States finally. Yeah, it took a long time. It was a it took a very, very long time. The Blu-ray and then the latest treatment of it is beautiful though. Oh yeah. It is it is fantastic. And it was it was really exciting when it finally came over. In fact, actually, wasn't it number one on Amazon in the foreign films uh-huh. category? Yeah. Because that's that's how big of a deal this was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for a very long time that nobody could get it. Yeah. Yeah. I actually saw the I actually saw this version first, too. Really? I did not see 85 until right after I'd finished 84. I saw them both at the same time. Wow, that's interesting because I grew up on 85. Yeah, I got to actually see 84 before 85, so I could... Lucky you. I chose to do that so that I could see the... I think that's the right order to do it. See it the really original, is. And then you see the one that they made after it. You know, so yeah. So you get to see it just like everybody else saw it. And seeing this movie, after seeing all of them in chronological order... That makes this one even more insanely good. Yes, it does. And uh, like it's it, it's jarring. It's the most jarring change yeah. yet in this franchise. Yeah. It, it's it totally is a completely different movie. We are ditching the seventies movies. We're ditching entirely. the Showa era and most of the Showa era entirely. Well, yeah, pretty much all the sixties. Almost everything. Yeah. The something that uh, I've uh, I've mentioned periodically in this podcast is I, I I've been noticing with these Godzilla movies that there are certain trends that Toho beat Hollywood to decades before you know Hollywood was doing the these sorts of things. And with this one, it's the reboot. Yeah, the reboot. Yeah. They were doing Toho was doing reboots twenty years before Hollywood started making it the you know a, a huge craze. And I think that's really interesting, and that's why it, it fits in with what you're talking about, with this being such a jarring transition. It's because it is totally unlike anything that people had been seeing for, I think it would probably be close to 20 years in the in the Godzilla franchise at this point. Right. We're also pretending that none of these other movies ever existed. Except for the original. Right. So this is, forget everything you've seen, except the first one, up to now. That's yeah. What, that's what this whole strategy is and it's a good idea to to reboot this because i mean after all of the stuff we've been through so far in this talk about all the changes that we've been through and how godzilla has changed over the decades so far it it really as it's asking for a reboot yeah so it's both a reboot and a sequel so it's a requel Uh (laughs) uh-huh it is also though it is one of the most elevated movies in the franchise I that's going, probably, that's a good way to put it. This is into the stratosphere as far as amazing how much this movie brings up and how much it connects to and how there's a there's a normal first time that you see this and I think I'd just absorb what I saw the first time I see it and then I'd see it again just so I could say, Okay, what is going on? And then pay attention to the all of this politics and all the that whole dimension because it's huge. I get the impression that this one is a little bit overlooked. Even the Japanese version is a little bit overlooked by the fan base. They always seem to gravitate more toward the, the later Heisei movies when there's so much interesting things, so many interesting things in this one, particularly if 
as we'll illustrate in part three, once if you have a greater understanding of what was going on in the Cold War at the time. We're, and we're also going back to referring to Godzilla as it. Yeah, That's I it know. Now. When it's not he, so we're it, it goes along with how the, we have the no longer a. He's not a character anymore, or a superhero, or or any of this other stuff that is that yeah. he morphed in and out of through all these movies, which. I don't think we're saying that this is that before this it was was bad. I think it was great. No, not actually. at all. <laughs> but that's what makes Godzilla so fun is that we've had all these different kinds of movies. But because you can't do this movie every time. No, you can't. No, this is really unique and uh, individual. So we have to we have to really take this in and see what all all it offers because there there is a lot that it offers. It's also interesting that we've gone from Godzilla as a nuclear allegory and symbolism to a living nuclear reactor. Yeah, which becomes a, a big thing for, I know, at least the rest of the Heisei era. Because he is a nuclear weapon now. Yeah, actually, he gets described as, 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 as a nuclear reactor and yeah. a nuclear bomb. Yeah, yeah. Hayashida said he's a, uh, is a living and, nuclear weapon that doesn't, doesn't care about anybody. And he's immortal. It. He. Yeah. Is immortal. I'm just going to keep saying he. <laughs> I don't know. It, it sounds funny. Yeah, it does. <laughs> or for Xenomorph is it. But it, that makes sense, though. That. Yeah. It's totally different. But anyway, it, it's, but I think, yeah, he's literally a nuclear weapon and he's immortal. And so we've. we've I kind of want to know how he figured that out, but I, I, I just. I don't know how you it. figure out if somebody's immortal or not. <laughs> I mean, he's, he just kind of presents himself as like, I am the resident Godzilla expert. Godzilla is immortal. I'm like, I'd like to know how you know that. Well, how I mean, you, like, I don't know. If somebody came up to me and said, hey, I'm immortal, I'd be like, oh, yeah? Let's find out. Yeah, let me get my sword. <laughs> where, I'll, I'll cut proof? your head off. Yeah, where's yeah. the proof? Let's see. <laughs> Godzilla is Highlander. <laughs> This movie is a dark film, figuratively and literally. Mm-hmm. But it, it is. It isn't. Well, it's not like the last movie we saw. That Terrific, was yeah, that Terrific was Godzilla. that was dark, weird, dark, dark TM, dark. Yeah, trademark dark with <laughs> the with the with the extremely appropriate music for that kind of a thing. You know, mm-hmm. And and then you know we go to guys whipping each other and stuff and <laughs> <laughs> which is supposed to be dark but is unintentionally funny <laughs> at least they weren't playing the music during that oh god but, but the point is the music for this movie which oh. by the way is possibly the most incredible music in the godzilla series i love the it, music it's in so this far one. up there on the list I, mean, oh. I don't know if it's at the top but my gosh but it, it, that isn't dark quotation marks it's very moody, though. It's, it's moody, but it is so appropriate. But it isn't just this uh, music that is just screaming dark. Yeah, it's a little uh, more you're watching, subdued. It's more appropriate. It's, it, but the atmosphere of this movie is way more, it has so much more continuity yes. than the movies we've been seeing. Yes. Because this, this has atmospheric continuity. I like the atmosphere. Yeah. It's, I, it's, it's a good kind of dark. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, and it the, the imagery that it's fit into is just I think it's actually some for me personally it's some of the most unique imagery in the entire franchise. And believe it or not, Brian, this actually uh, I mentioned before that there's a there's a movie we're going to get to a little bit later that inspired my uh 
kaiju novella that I have out there, uh, Destroyer. You can buy it on Amazon. But this one actually inspired a short story that I had published in an anthology. Oh. Particularly the the scenes after the uh, the nuclear collision, and you have the red sky and the really moody music and all of that sequence right there. It's actually fairly short. I remembered it being longer, mm-hmm. but that right there just it really got my imagination going, and uh, I wrote a kind of a post-apocalyptic a kaiju story centered around that. Uh, the idea of it being that you know you had this apocalypse brought about by a kaiju that then kind of gets worshipped as a god, hmm. and then there are uh, the characters that you follow in the short story are defying their culture that thinks of the kaiju as a god so they can escape the city that they've been trapped in. Oh, so it's a question of how the kaiju is viewed. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big part of it. And the divide. Yeah. Yeah. I'll show you the story sometime, but those scenes are specifically what inspired it. Getting back to the whole Heisei Showa thing. Yeah, this is when the Heisei movies start. It's my strong belief, though, that this movie should maybe not be part of the so-called Heisei series. It was released when Emperor Showa was alive, and if you're going to do this kind of a naming anyway, then shouldn't you do it right? But anyway, it also works more as a bookend for the Showa series, this movie. You know, because you have the first movie, and then you have this. And so those, those work as bookends. But also, it's a great movie to end with for the Showa series, instead of 75. It also doesn't have much to do with the rest of the Heisei movies. Stylistically, even, story-wise, uh, it look, is, they look different. They do. It's It still is technically connected Godzilla with continuity. Godzilla looks different? Yeah. Because this one is a one-off costume, right? Yeah, for the, it wasn't recycled. Yeah, and we, only, we don't get to see it again. And no. so, I don't know, it's just... I understand, but... And also, this... I know it's a reboot movie. That's why. Yeah. I almost want to hold a moment of silence to, to say goodbye to Telehoscope. <laughs> Cause I love that. How those movies look. Yeah. Telehoscope. This looks, this looks fine. It's widescreen. The Heisei movies were but, filmed at a different aspect ratio. Yeah. And just, I just prefer the, uh, Telehoscope really, but I don't know. This, this looks okay. I don't live with it, but yeah. I miss Tohoscope too. I just feel like Tohoscope's one of the ultimate ways to film these movies, but I, I understand why. Right from the beginning, this film tells the audience that this is going to be completely different than what they've been used to for a long time. The opening credits in this, which do get copied for the most part stylistically in the Americanized version, it opens up with the slow reveal of the title and it's filled all the text is all filled with fire and lava mm-hmm. with the really ominous music it's not intense scary music but it's very ominous music it's definitely monster movie music oh yeah most definitely and then it it shows you the title after it, after that extreme close up after you see the letters kind of form a little bit the movie actually opens a bit like a horror film it does it almost sounds like a, like music for a vampire movie. Almost. Yeah, because there's kind of a lot. It ties into the whole vampzilla thing with the fangs. The first thing that happens is a fishing vessel gets attacked. Mm-hmm. And it comes out of nowhere. They don't know what hit them. 
and stuff like that, which actually in a lot of ways makes the juxtaposition once you go from that opening scene when you just hear Godzilla's roar as he comes out of the island mm. to the next. It's a bit jarring because it's daytime. It's a different sh- boat and they're playing that J-pop song on the radio. Yeah, it's a little bit weird, but I think it's I think there's a st- there's a reason for that. It's meant to be a contrast because everything is completely different. And then so it's like here's a guy having a normal day, and then the, uh, you know <laughs> the exposition news network breaks in <laughs> and yeah. starts giving us all information about what's been going on with the boat. And then this guy realizes, oh wait, that's the boat. And then he goes on there. And then there's when he's exploring the boat, there's this really effective use of silence and there's mystery. You don't know what's going on. Yeah, that has a horror film. Yeah, very much a horror film, confined spaces. Even they even found ways to visually communicate other tactile sensations in this. Because when you know, I'm a writer, and they always tell us when we're writing to put as much tactile description as you can in there. It's like they were doing a novelization of this and then they just made it into a scene. Yeah, because he does things like he opens up a door to another room and you know he covers his mouth and nose because he's he's smelling decay. Yeah, it, gets, it totally gets all cinematic with us right there and yeah. And, and then the slime that the that our creature the the sea louse, the yes. shockerus or whatever. I, I looked up yes. its name and it has a really funny sounding name. Uh-huh. So it, it was it was all very interesting and you've got corpses and blood and all of these things. So it's really guys bu- in lockers passed out. Yeah, it's really building this uh, this uh, this horror atmosphere. Although I have to admit, well, I with, yeah. with the guy in the locker just made me think of you know, all these new survival horror video games where one of the mechanics is hiding in lockers. Yeah, it's very horror filmy. But also, there's there is a nod to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in this. Really, scene because he enters the dark room, and then there's the person sitting in the chair. Oh yeah. And, uh, now I get and it. And then he slowly swivels the chair around, and it's this mummified, uh, very psycho moment there. Uh, uh, that's nice that they put that in there. The movie was from 1960, and this is 24 years later. But better late, better late than never, I guess. Wow, I can't believe I never thought of that. Well, you're the you're the Hitchcock expert, so yeah, obviously my, you my brain just it. about went crazy when I saw that. I was like, wait, I've seen this a hundred million times. Here it is. Wow. Awesome. I, I just wish, as wonderful as that buildup is, I do kind of wish that the sea louse was, looked a little bit better as the payoff. Well, when it flies at him, it's pretty... Un- that's kind of funny. Yeah. It fly, flies it's a through little, the air, like, diagonally. And- yeah, it's a little unconvincing when it's flying around. When you have the close-ups... It looks better. It looks better. when You, know, it, it, you very much get the sense that the thing's heavy, and it's you know it really wants to suck him dry and it is um well it is pretty gross oh yeah still. very gross yeah it's pretty gross still yeah so. it's just when it's flying around it looks a looks a little disappointing it's a little <laughs> funny there but not overall pretty good yeah I, I, I applaud them for for even doing that scene because they could have just mm, they could have just had it not had it maybe i don't know there's and then the song that is playing on there the j-pop song yeah isn't our actress, it doesn't she sing that? She's a pop star, right? Or the Naoko? Yeah. I don't remember, actually. <laughs> You'd have to look that up. She could sing the song. I love the scene at the nuclear power plant and how it's handled, because it's it's a POV shot from Godzilla. 
Yeah. I, and you that, hear that one of the is that maybe the first time that we've even I think seen so that? actually. And I just love how it's handled because it's it's very subtle and creepy because it's, it's it's that like POV a, shot. It's like you're in a tall building and it's moving. Yeah, it's moving, and you just hear you hear Godzilla growl really low, and then the nuclear power plant is revealed in the fog because it's very foggy. Mm-hmm. So at first you're not sure what's going on. You, you're probably thinking, well, maybe Godzilla's in the fog, but no. Then once it starts to clear, you see the power plant. You realize, oh wait, no, this is a POV shot. Yeah, and then you have that that wonderful full body reveal of Godzilla. And then we're talking, this is about 30 minutes into the movie, but yeah, 30, 33 I, I minutes. At it about, yeah. yeah, 30. And First you have, time. you have that security guard just wandering out there, minding his own business. And then he sees Godzilla and the camera pans up mm-hmm. it's and nice. it's, it's just shot. so, so effective. And I'm like, I, I, one of the thoughts that I went through my head when I saw this, my gosh, Godzilla is scary again. And bigger. And bigger. Yeah. He, he was 50 meters tall through the Showa era. And now he's 80 meters tall. And it's because of uh, what did they say that the skyline of Tokyo? Was the skyline of Tokyo was bigger, and they if they kept him fifty meters, he would look really tiny. Right. <laughs> is this our first movie with the prime minister in it? We've seen a lot of government officials in these movies, but I don't think we've seen a prime minister yet. At Nor least, not an obvious, def- not named. Yeah, not a not, not singled a, out really. Yeah, yeah, not an obvious prime minister. This is definitely the first time we've had a prime minister. In a Godzilla movie, as a character, yeah, as a character for sure, yeah. It always is always like the this leadership committee with military people yeah. and everybody else sitting around, and but we don't we don't get anybody saying prime minister. We don't get anybody referring to somebody as sorry. You know, we get yes. that now, and that's what sorry is is the the uh, the honorable title for uh, the prime minister. It's yeah, like saying it, Mr. President. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like Mr. President. Yeah. yeah. So that's so that's new, but this is the first time we've actually seen the the big guy in charge of the government of uh, Japan. It's very interesting. The actor that plays him is very good. He might be my favorite character in this movie. It's there's a lot of gravity to it to the character for sure, and it's just a somehow relatable. I, I don't know. Yeah, if you're Japanese, especially, it would be relatable. I don't. This this guy isn't supposed to be anybody in particular. No, not yeah. no. This isn't supposed to be the prime minister at the time, and they weren't doing no. that. And I, this is kind of getting a little bit ahead of things, but I feel like the prime minister is the character who suffers the most in the re-edits for the Americanized version, as a lot of his scenes get cut. Yeah, because the, the cutting was dependent on shoving as much action into it and getting rid of the talky parts. Which is really unfortunate, but... Even though the talkie parts are some of the best parts. Yeah. Just, I mean, just like in, in a lot of Star Trek episodes and movies and stuff, that sometimes the moments like what the Prime Minister has in these movies, is some of those are some of the best ones. You don't need action and everything to have it be memorable. If you're going to have government scenes like this in a movie, you have to have... a. There's like a critical mass of them that you have to have time-wise you have to have that fleshed out enough so that the audience knows exactly what's going on, which we do in this. And actually, that's something I think is to the film's credit is the first time I saw the Japanese version of this, I didn't know as much about Japanese politics as I do now. And yet I was still able to understand the weight of what the prime minister was dealing with. 
I was given enough information within the film that I got it. There wasn't something that you needed to read before you went in. Yeah. And that's astonishing considering that this, I was not the target audience for this. I'm an American. And yeah, the target audience was Japanese. It was the target audience was Japanese. So oh, yeah. all of this was, they already knew. It's, mm-hmm. it, it was part of the zeitgeist, part of the culture. They understood all of that. And it was but, all recent news. A lot. And it was all recent news. But I was able to understand where he was coming from, despite my ignorance at the time. And now knowing what I know now, it there's yeah, after a, we've even a greater years. sense. Yeah, after we've talked about the subjects for two and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's an even <laughs> greater sense now of the gravity and what was going on. I know, I understand the original context much better. We do get an interesting Showa era repeat in this movie because there's uh, we get the reporter. We mm-hmm. get the news organization, and and we get the scientists. Yes, and so it's the, it's, the sorts of character archetypes that we're used to. Uh huh. And and so that's classical, in that way, and we're not going around with aliens and all this other stuff that we've been doing. It's mu- a much more grounded kaiju film, like the like the movies from the fifties. I mean, it has a little bit of sci-fi in it because the Super X is very much a science fiction-y kind of vehicle and they have the laser cannons yeah that's sci-fi-ish yeah, and then there's sci-fi-ish. there's also like a fantasy element to this too because of godzilla being attracted to the nuclear plants and absorbing the nuclear energy yeah which is, it reminds me of nuclear energies and, and specifically radiation in this movie's a little bit like magic because godzilla can just magically absorb all of the radiation. Yeah, he feeds on it. So you can destroy a nuclear power plant and just be, oh, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but and, and so that's not really, you can't scientifically explain it. No, but... it's Godzilla, right? Yeah. And, but then you have to, um, but then, yeah, there is, there, I think there's always a fantasy element to any Godzilla movie because I think Godzilla is a fantasy creature. He's, well, at this point now, especially, he's a living nuclear bomb and he's immortal. And so, like, how science fiction can you really get when the base of it is fantasy-esque? And, well, it's also a nice expansion of the of the Godzilla mythos because they never really explained how, what Godzilla eats or anything. And in this one, they're saying that he he feeds off of nuclear energy. That's his his sustenance. And it plays into the longstanding themes with Godzilla related to nuclear power and nuclear weapons and, and such. But at the same time, he still just wanders into Tokyo with no apparent motivation. Yeah, which is really odd because you would think that if, if he's going there that he wants. Yeah, if you, if he's going to the... I mean, it makes sense initially where he's, he's looking for the nuclear power plants, but then he goes to Tokyo because? Because you have to. Yeah. Right? It's what you do in these yeah, movies. Yeah, you don't need to go to any extra work to explain that. No, but I think it also adds to Godzilla's mystique. Godzilla is a symptom of nature being out of balance. And when nature's out of balance, it produces monsters. So he said Godzilla is a sign of end times for humanity because it's, I guess, implicit in that statement is he's saying it's humanity's fault that nature's out of balance. And it's specifically because they have dabbled in nuclear power. Yeah. And so it's pretty easy. It seems like there's also a little bit of economic doom 
to this too, because Japan has really gone in leaps and bounds growth wise since the original Gojira. And so it just seems like we get that, like we talked about in King Kong versus Godzilla, the economic miracle being, you know, the benefits of it being destroyed in the blink of an eye. I think we're getting that back too. We're getting a lot of Godzilla themes all at once here, really. Another one of my favorite scenes is definitely when the Shinkansen is downtown in Shinjuku and Gojira picks it up. And and uh, that whole scene is very like you have to do that right. Yeah, it's it's actually reminiscent. We were, we were due for a scene like this. Yeah, it it's I think it's a it's an homage to a similar scene in, in the original. Kong. Well, and also in the original film because he goes mm-hmm. after a train in that. Yeah, but this time it's the Shinkansen because you you can tell because it's the blue and white uh, bullet train, and uh, the, it it's shown twice I think actually throughout the movie at least. I think so. Mm-hmm. It's a very, you can tell that that was another reason that they put the Shinkansen in there was to just, I mean, that's, you have to have it. It's new. I paid very close attention to those scenes involving the the prime minister and the diplomats from the Soviet Union and the United States, partly because of all the stuff that we've been researching and learning and just seeing the very different attitudes that we're getting in this. I think for a lot of uh, American audience members, they're getting a very different side of the Cold War in this. We're used to seeing the Cold War from a, from a very American sort of perspective. And in this one, we're focusing on a country that's not one of the superpowers. It's a country that's caught in the middle of it. And you get that in microcosm in that boardroom scene when the prime minister is meeting with those two diplomats and they are both they have different attitudes but there's both advocating the same thing you need to let us use nuclear weapons to stop godzilla the soviets even seem a little bit more bossy and forceful about it well that's because they lost a sub because of godzilla so it's for the i think for the soviets that's they're taking it a little bit more personally because they lost something. The Americans, I think, are just worried that this is going to escalate tensions and escalate the conflict. But well, the Americans are more concerned with using nuclear weapons to get rid of Godzilla and then go back to normal. Yeah. And that's why the scene that's after this, when the prime minister is meeting with his advisors and trying to figure out what he needs to do. It's very, very interesting because one of the advisors actually tells him that he feels like Japan is being used as part of an experiment to test nukes in a small-scale conflict. Yeah, they don't want to be the guinea pig. And then they they put the shoe on the other foot and they, they asked, what if this was New York city or Washington or Moscow. Yeah. Would you you, use a nuke then? And then that that's when they realized that, yeah, there's a lot of uh, gravity to that decision. Yeah. It silences them right there. And I I think that it's such a good response. It's such an interesting response. And then, because before that, the prime minister come comes out and says, here's my decision. We're standing by the three non-nuclear principles, which is something we've talked about in the previous episode that 
means we will not possess, we will not harbor, we will not use nuclear weapons on Japanese soil. That's my decision. Yes, he reasserts that policy. Yeah. And the Russian diplomat responds to that by saying that's egotism. He calls the Japanese arrogant, essentially, for doing that. And, yeah, and pri- Mr. Rosenberg, uh, or well, yeah, that's what it was, wasn't it? He says, um, well, this is no time to be thinking about principles. Yeah. So again, you're getting two very different attitudes that are trying to get at the same results, pretty much. And Mitamura makes, once again, makes a very shrewd response, which is, isn't it egotism that both the Soviet Union and the United States are constantly clamoring to get more nuclear weapons mm-hmm. as a deterrent against each other? Right. That's why it's so fascinating to look at this, because it's a completely different angle on the Cold War. Is it different from Vietnam or Korea, too? Because they were, even though you know, they were both in specific wars, and they were really caught in the middle of the Cold War. But Japan, there wasn't a war there during the Cold War, and yet they're still in the middle of everything. So, Brian, I want to ask you something here. Do you think that the prime minister more or less enacts the the U.S.-Japanese alliance after they find out about the Soviet missile that had been launched? That is um, definitely what's going on. Because it's not something that we're used to seeing. We're no, used, we don't. We're used to seeing the, the Japanese try to deal with everything themselves. Yeah, through all of these movies, we've seen that. But now, finally, we have America being uh, depicted in... A movie like this. The Soviets are presented as being a bit pushier. They're reasonable because they do respect Japan's wishes. Because there's that scene on the boat where they said, oh, yeah, they won't let us use it. So we're going to turn it off. Turn yeah. it off. The Americans just seem just a little bit disappointed. They're upset, but they're also being respectful. SMH. Yeah, they were shaking their head at uh at the result, because it wasn't exactly what they wanted, but they had to just go with it. In that scene, we have both the Soviet Union and the United States agreeing on something, which is also, I mean, part of that is sort of ha-ha for once that happened. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it also definitely shows how, in a corner, uh, the prime minister was being put in by this. Call me crazy, Brian. But the score in this movie, we've mentioned it, you know, it's it's a fantastic score. I felt like in some ways it had some shades of a Fukube in it. Because there are points where he does get a little bit bigger and more bombastic. But it's also very much its own thing. So I guess what I'm saying is it feels like Godzilla music without being a carbon copy of a Fukube. Which I think was needed by this time. This is another good way to get something fresh into this into these movies and i think it works perfectly and i find it actually kind of a little bit ironic that the super x gets its own little hero theme in yeah this. and the military has its own theme too which i like both of them yeah but every time the super x shows up it has this similar sort of music cue that gets played and it's Kind of a a nice rousing military march sort of a thing. It's like, oh, here comes the Super X. Yeah. Yeah, it gets a fanfare. I really do feel like the the special effects in this movie are really ambitious. They tried a lot of 
new things in this that don't really get replicated later. I think that might partly be because of money, but or maybe they just didn't feel like they were as effective as they wanted them to be. But I, I it's just so interesting, you know, because building, you know, the 16 foot robot Godzilla that they used in some shots. Kind of like not gonna do that in every movie. No, oh, I mean, yeah, but uh, the giant foot that's in a couple of shots. I mean, that, that those were not cheap. Those obviously were not cheap. No, and, and part of this also is a lot of it's economics. The economics were doing really well uh, in Japan right now at this time in '84, and so th- this was uh, after after 1990, especially we're we're going to see more problems occur just because the budgets get uh, hurt with these movies during the '90s and the film industry during the '90s in Japan was very interesting. And I think my favorite special effects sequences in this movie has to be Godzilla's battles with the Super X. Because you see a lot of different special effects techniques, a lot of different filming techniques are all on display during those sequences. Uh, the close-up of uh, of Godzilla's face, that's obviously a very articulate puppet mm. and, and such. So you're getting a lot of reaction shots and all of the animated laser beams and the 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 rockets and everything that are getting fired and then you know god's you know, the thing maneuvering around between the model buildings right it all looks very effective and the it's even a little bit ironic that the the super x defeat seemingly defeats godzilla right after the soviet missile gets launched i was mm. like oh we dealt with one problem oh wait there's a new one yeah <laughs> we can't do anything about it <laughs> yeah the, there's a very nice ticking clock to yeah the, the later parts of this movie like yeah always something happening yeah and it's the same thing goes for the our human characters that we're following get put in peril as they're trapped in a building and then for they a have pretty long time for a long time and then they have a lot to of be, stuff happens that they miss yeah and then the they have to be rescued with a helicopter and that's a very tense scene and that was actually very well done because some of those shots it's a real helicopter and yeah. some shots it's miniatures and you know, obviously with the, the set for the window, and yeah, people yeah. spend some time on. Yeah, that there's a lot of things that they did to to make that scene effective. I wonder how much of this movie being good, how much of that was just time. Could have been. I think they did spend a little more time than usual on this one. Yeah, there's a lot of when you have a nine year break like this, you want to make something that makes an impact. Oh yeah, you don't want to just have something like Terror of Mechagodzilla again after all these years and, and after all, you know, you, you're going to have to change the way you're doing things and update things. And so you have to really, I think they were trying pretty hard on this. They put a lot of time, work into this. Yeah. And what makes that sequence great is a lot of it is taking place after the Super X has incapacitated Godzilla and the tension is so thick that you actually forget that Godzilla is around. I found myself, or I had to remind myself, I was like, oh wait, Godzilla is still around in this because all those other things take center stage. Yeah. And it's a, it's a long, uh, well put together sequence. The, all the missiles and then the, the impact and, and it's, it's a very long 
sequence, I think, of just all the events that are lined up, bam, 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 you know, one after the other. Yeah, and uh, I really like the shot when you get to the end of that, when Godzilla defeats the Super X and, you know, he's blasted a hole in the in a building just so he could get, hit mm-hmm. the Super X. They think, oh, we'll hide behind the skyscraper. Nope, he shoots right through it. And then it lands on the on the street and then Godzilla just pushes the building over and just that lingering shot of Godzilla just standing over everything. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit scary. Yeah. I mean, it, he really does look like like some sort of just evil god that has just smote the tiny mortals. He's just looming over it. It's almost Lovecraftian in some ways. I think now when people see the the building collapse, it's aged because the building wouldn't have done that, right? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah, I just go from vertical to horizontal and stay put together. Yeah, but uh, you know, it was a more innocent time when when people didn't see buildings uh, falling over on a regular basis like some do. Did they evacuate Tokyo because? There are a lot of people there. I know people have talked about this, right? It's like there's an audience there and everything. All the nuclear stuff's raining down on us. Oh, well, this is so cool to look at. We're not going to leave. Yeah, I was noticing that. It's like when people have hurricane advisories and stuff. You need to evacuate. Nope, I'm staying. Godzilla's coming to town. Like, I'm going to leave. I don't know. It's funny. <laughs> I, there were there were mentions of, of evacuations, but I guess some people just didn't want to leave. They wanted to watch. They're just late. Yeah. I feel sorry for them because you, you, you have that scene early on when Godzilla comes to Tokyo when he shoots the helicopter out of the sky and then it crashes on the on that overpass and then mm-hmm. it just starts this chain reaction where all of the cars <laughs> blow up. <laughs> I, I, I was just I thinking, oh, and, crap. I looked at that and I was like, dang, I hope that doesn't happen here ever in real life. That I don't know what would cause that. But I mean, it's not every it, day a helicopter gets shot out yeah, of the sky. It, I, I think when audiences see that now, uh, they, they're surprised because this chain reaction is like dominoes. Yeah. It's like a domino chain of explosions all the way down the elevated uh, highway. And I'm like, Wow. Well, okay. as we've established... That really went out of control. Yeah, well, but as we've established, Nakano loves his explosions. I figured I almost... Since it's him doing it, I almost would have figured more explosions would be in this. Yeah, it's a little... You think they would have It scaled back that. a little bit on the explosions. Uh-huh, compared to what we've been seeing lately, yeah. We also have a shot at the end when Godzilla is coming over the hill... And you see his face come up first and then the rest of him. There's a shot like that, actually, in Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla from 1974. Now, yeah, it is. Yeah. Now, mind you... a lot of similarities. Yeah. Now, mind you, that one, in 74, it's supposed to be kind of this heroic reveal. But in this one, it's uh, the context is very different. This is uh, kind of a Godzilla is marching to to his doom sort of a thing. He's being attracted away and about to be sealed away in a volcano. So it's mm. a it's much more bittersweet in this one. Yeah, especially with all the music at the end getting all emotional with us. Yes. We started getting more science-y in these movies. It seems like I'm watching the beginning of the formation of G-Force. <laughs> I feel like this is the, the foreshadowing or 
prelude to G-Force because that's going to be a thing later. Mm-hmm. But it, it just seemed like, okay, the, we're going to start looking at, start applying real scientific principles to something that totally isn't real, but they're going to do it anyway. Yeah, it's that's very much a, a science fiction trope. You know, at least trying to make some sort of sense some sort of justification for what for what's going on even if it does mean kind of embellishing a little bit if it sounds good if it sounds reasonable sounds feasible audiences usually go with it but at the same time aren't you taking away a little bit of the mystique of godzilla every time you do that because you just said that he's immortal and then you're applying scientific principles to him at the same time i can see where you're coming from with that because we're going to be applying well, over the movies ahead of us. There are going to be a lot of scientific principles applied to him. This is true. And this also gets to the other point of one thing that I've noticed throughout these movies. And that is, where did the extra 15 minutes come from? Now, we've talked about this before. But with movies from this one on for quite a while... The movies are about one hour and 41 to one hour and 45 generally minutes. We, we, they, there's a different time length to these movies. I mean, before they were more about 90. 80, 90 minutes, 90 ish, yeah, 85, 90, 95, somewhere around there. But it was pretty predictable throughout the show a series that they'd be about that long, which I would think somebody out there has got to agree with me, but. I think one hour and 30 minutes fits very well for an average Godzilla movie. And I feel like 145 feels long for the amount of considering the amount of content that's in the movie. It feels like these movies start to run long and I don't know exactly where the extra 15 minutes in a lot of these movies comes from this one. I'm going to not really be concerned with that because it's a reboot and it's such an individual movie, but the regular movies that we're going to be seeing after this, or at least a lot more regular, I guess, than this more normal, so to speak for what we've seen on the timeline. So more status quo. Yes. We're, we're going more towards a status quo later, but those are an hour and 45 minutes roughly. And I keep thinking when I watch them, where the extra 15 minutes come from. And I think part of this is the sciency expositions. Uh huh. And and it's that I think they thought somebody was interested in this kind of stuff, so they put it in the movie. I'm not. <laughs> but I, I because I think Godzilla is fantasy at the at the very core of it of its being. Even even though there's a lot of sci fi stuff that gets thrown around every once in a while. But I, I don't need to have the, the, the science stuff explained to me. And I, I don't know if I need G-Force either. I was glad, though, that in this movie, the conversations and the, the scenes between people, the talking scenes, they're not talking about Godzilla all the time. No, they're not. They have their own lives. They, it, it's not... Uh, Godzilla is not the primary driver of everybody and, and they're... And their interests and their drive, yeah. In in the character list, like 
it's I, I like that a lot about this movie. Yeah, I mean, there's even some points where the characters are dealing with their own sort of stuff. It doesn't happen terribly often, but I mean, as we mentioned, there's a there's an entire sequence where they're not worried about Godzilla. They're trying to get out of a building. Right now, yeah. mind you, the building was damaged by Godzilla, so that's why they're trapped. But they're just trying to get out of the dang building. And yes, they're trying to get Dr. Hayashida's device where it needs to go. But you have these these nice little quiet scenes between Goro and Naoko where she's just admitting that she's really scared. And she needed help with that. And it doesn't I mean it's only indirectly connected to Godzilla. It's more about her dealing with a very human thing being afraid in a crisis and it even kind of implies some some attraction between the two of them right so there's this very understated romantic subplot going like on every in this. romantic subplot in yeah, these movies every, is understated yeah all of them are but i found it really touching and I was also glad that because if this had been an American movie, by the time you got to the end of that scene, there would have been some smooching. And in this one, that doesn't happen. Never so, does. No, except in Monster Zero, <laughs> and you barely see it. <laughs> and it's not between two Japanese actors. No, no. But but I do think you're right. Their their lives are not revolving around Godzilla, even though the things that they are dealing with at least have some sort of connection to him. Mm. Interesting fact we learned when uh, on the the most recent G Fest when they had Shinji Aguchi over, he worked on this movie uncredited. He was showing us uh, slides, pictures of. Him. Yeah, he was uncredited, yeah. but he helped with the special effects in this. Yeah, I would have loved to have worked on that one. Yeah, which is really interesting because then he goes on to be co-director of Shin Godzilla, which I guess in some weird way makes sense because there are a few stylistic things that this film does that Shin Godzilla does later, such as when they introduce the governmental characters, they just put their name and title up on the screen and with, and with subtitles. Yeah. And then we get our subtitles with it. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that there are a lot of subtitles in the Blu-ray. Yeah. But it's not a version of Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla is a version of it. And it, it's little things like that. And, and the heavy focus on politics that, really in a lot of ways make this the, you know, very much the predecessor to Shin Godzilla. So it's not like Shin Godzilla came completely out of left field with this. Yeah, when I saw Shin Godzilla in the theater, that's all I could think of was, wow, they're redoing 84 only uh, for modern times. And they did it very successfully. What's interesting is we also, we've been talking about the guy indirectly, but we get kind of a reboot version of a Showa-era character in this because our reporter is named Goromaki and that was the name of the reporter from son of Godzilla. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I don't know if they were just recycling the name or I think he's the only character who gets rebooted from the Showa era in any of these movies. You're probably right. Um, there also, there's a, uh, just like in King Kong versus Godzilla, we have a nuclear submarine being attacked by Godzilla. Yes, that is true. A connection to that. But this time they flipped it, and it's a Soviet submarine and not an American submarine. Yeah, and we get to see uh, the Russian language and Japanese language on the screen and then get it subtitled for us into English. Yeah, that was, that was a really surreal experience. 
also we have an obvious connection to the Rodan movie, the original Rodan, because of the volcano mm-hmm. and all that. So there's that's the connection to that. And also, just like in Mothra versus Godzilla, we have Godzilla stumbling and tripping and falling into a building. This is also true. We've come full circle, too, because both this and the original Gojira film have our characters refer to an American dinosaur book to do their research. Did you see <laughs> that it was an American book and it said dinosaurs along the side? No, of I didn't catch that. Uh, and I swear I have that book. You do? I, I, I didn't go find it. I, I think I have it. That would be amazing if you did. It's, like, it's just a kid's book, I think. That's all it is. It's not like a, a research book. Why are, it's a picture book. Why are these obviously brilliant scientists referring to children's dinosaur books? American children's dinosaur books. <laughs> to boot. Yeah, I think they did that in um, Godzilla Raids again, too, with uh, Anguirus. Yeah. They, were, they had the, the American book, and they were researching that. We also have one returning actor in this film. Hiroshi Koizumi. Mm-hmm, who plays a scientist. Yeah, not uh, not our main scientist. Not Hayashi. The other scientist, yeah, it was... Uh, you want to make sure that the character's right, but then it was supposed to be... Oh, Hayashida was originally going to be played by be Harada. Harada, yeah. Which is really interesting, especially when you consider that the character has connections, very personal connections, to the original attack from 1954. He said his parents died during that. So I think having Harada in that role... Would have been a nice echo of the Oh, yeah, very movie. nice echo. But unfortunately, Mr. Harada became ill when they started production and actually died not long after the movie was released. So we didn't get to see him again, unfortunately. And that's part of what this movie was kind of about going on behind the scenes, from what I gather, is that we had an, a whole generation of crew and, and everybody who'd been making these movies all through the Showa era. And finally, they're starting to get old themselves. And then there's a new generation of movie creators that needs to be needs to be created here. There's a young younger generation of people brought in to help with creating this movie. So we have the older generation passing on knowledge and communicating with the newer generation about how to make these movies, because there does have to be a generational transition at some point. I, I I chuckled a little bit during the, the the scene when the prime minister's talking with his advisors, and as soon as he puts the prime minister puts a cigarette into his mouth, that guy just leans right in and lights it for him. Was, I'm thinking, is that your job? Yes. Yeah, Are you the official cigarette lighter? Yes, yeah, it like delineated in the official duties <laughs> for for what he has to do for the prime minister. <laughs> like light his cigarettes at all times. Yeah. Susan hits his mouth. Boom. <laughs> Another thing that I thought was a was just a little bit funny is there's a, there's a transition from one scene to the next when it's a it's supposed to be being used to illustrate a point about making Mount Mihara erupt if I remember correctly and they're using what looks like a bottle of champagne and the scene just starts with the cork popping off so I was like oh wait a minute are we breaking out the celebratory champagne or something right now yeah. I was like, that was an oh, interesting transition. Wait. I was like, oh, wait, no, you're just illustrating a point. Okay. <laughs> and revealing uh, Hiroshi Koizumi. Yes. That's when we first see him. And I think that's that's a way to, I think probably the audience was, the audience that didn't know that he was going to be in it, they were shocked and they thought, oh, wow, it's a familiar face. And then you had the bum that we see a couple of times right. toward the end of the movie, which I think he's he's probably the closest thing to actual comic relief. 
mm-hmm. in this. But he, he makes some, he does some very interesting things. It's almost, it's almost satirical in a lot of ways because <laughs> he goes to a, a fancy restaurant that's been abandoned and he, he puts out, he gets a table all set up with all the fancy food and he's gonna, he's about to sit down to eat and then he gets interrupted by Godzilla. Mm-hmm. So and he yells at Godzilla's like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, and he, he calls him an out of towner. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Stupid out of towner, but it, but I think it's it's kind of satirical because because as we were mentioning, you know, you have these disasters and they make people evacuate, but some people refuse and then they just stay. So I think it's kind of a kind of a play off of that, right? Yeah, and it's also kind of funny because even though he's he's obviously he's a homeless guy, but he talks about how he's college educated. So I'm thinking, why are you homeless? I don't know. It's an interesting character. <laughs> yeah. And then the last time we see him, uh, he bumps into two of our main characters, and he makes a very interesting statement. He says, don't think of this as a disaster. Think of it as a chance, which is ironic because he's going around looting because he's he's carrying uh-huh. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just thinking, well, this is some more kind of interesting satire right here. But, you know, kind of, again, playing off of the idea of, you know, there are going to be people who are just going to take advantage of a situation like that. Yeah. And instead of riots and, and stuff, it's just one guy. Yeah. And then we see him running away from Godzilla and Godzilla looks down and glares at him. And then mm-hmm. he kind of does the same thing. He's like, oh, how dare you? And then after that, we don't know what happens. So we don't know if Godzilla killed him or or what. He just ends with him Which more know, shaking his fist at Godzilla. He's comic relief. Yeah. But again, like I said, I think there's, there's a touch of satire in that. Mm-hmm. And also just it, any humor in this movie is not going to be in the kaiju part. It's going to be the human part of the plot. Oh, yeah. Then there's a scene right before that where Naoko and Goro are climbing down and part of the building face has been ripped off. And she looks down, sees how far they have to go, freaks out a little bit. But then she looks forward and there's Godzilla coming at them. So it's like, don't look down. Don't look forward. Uh, yeah. You know, so, where are you going to look? Yeah. It's like, what are you going to do? <laughs> so I thought that was you know just a little bit humorous. I don't know if you remember this or not, but at about the, the 62 minute mark with the, with the Shinkansen. What was the deal with that hippie-looking dude who's just smiling as Godzilla picks up the train? I don't know. That was weird. I noticed that every time, and I just thought, okay. Because they bothered to make a shot, a very obvious shot on that guy, and he's he's smiling as this is all going. I was like, what's the point of this? I don't know. Is it a piece of dark humor or something? I I thought maybe it was just a part of um, maybe how... Tokyo is like maybe the way like we look at New York with eccentric cab drivers and with accents and, and stuff like this in, in movies that we've seen over the years. And it's just part of the eccentricity of that's Tokyo <laughs> or something. It's like with the bum. I don't know. Yeah, I could see that. But still, it was it was just struck me as odd. Mm-hmm. Next, we'll get into all of the political and historical and economic everything that this movie has to do with because it's a lot it's so interesting though and we're we're just really gonna elucidate this movie as much as we possibly can this will be good this concludes part two of the podcast you're listening to kaiju vision radio In part three of the podcast we discuss issues that were either brought up by the film directly or referenced or events that were going on in Japan at the time the movie was released. 
So for this one, we have the acceleration of the Cold War, NATO's Able Archer exercise, Korean Airlines Flight 007, and the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. Now, we've had nine years between this and the last movie, so it's been a long time uh, that's, that's passed. Here are a lot of events that occurred. A lot of things have changed. <laughs> Quite dramatically, actually. Because the Cold War is such a central part of this movie, we're, we're going to do the acceleration of the Cold War first. This is really about the only real Cold War Godzilla movie. Some of the other ones hinted at it, but they weren't really about the Cold War. Mothra was about the security treaty more than it was about the Cold War specifically. Although Realistica is, uh, there's some some of that going on. That's probably the closest I can think of. Mm-hmm. But really, uh, this is this blows that out of the water with just the amount of Cold War stuff that's going on in it at any given point in time. Really, the early '80s were uh, an, a warm up of the Cold War, and uh, part of this was related to uh, the the election of Ronald Reagan and the and also the the kind of old men period of uh, Soviet rule with uh, Brezhnev and Andropov and, and and a couple people after that 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 like they were in they were the premier of the Soviet Union for like a year or a couple of years and they were they were always on their deathbed all the time and oh yeah and they were so old school just ingrained with distrust and and all this communist hardcore ideology from the good old days of the Soviet Union and and then here they are in the early 80s and they're relics of the past and and yet they still think the exact same way yeah, and now they're dealing with an American president that has the the guts to start doing things like calling the Soviet Union the evil empire. And making references <laughs> to the ash heap of history, <laughs> wanting to relegate it. And the, when you when you talk about ash heaps, you sort of think about nuclear warfare a little bit when in this context. Yeah. And so <laughs> the, there was a heating up of rhetoric, and there was a heating up of paranoia and of distrust. And, and so this, this escalated things. Also, uh, Reagan, only after these incidents took place, did Reagan truly realize and, and abhor nuclear weapons to the point that he did uh, by the time his first term was over. But early on, he, he didn't have quite the appreciation for how things could happen so quickly and also how something like a nuclear war could get out of hand by accident even and there would be literally no time to react. The big picture is that only after these incidents and after this heat up took place, did the Soviets really, did we know really that the Soviets were genuinely afraid that the United States would declare nuclear war on them and annihilate them from, from history. And this is something that I don't think Americans and the American government really knew to to a full as full of an extent that the distrust was that bad, and they thought that Americans are going to nuke them. This fear was we didn't register this fear with them. You know that you're not that you don't want to commit nuclear war, and yet your adversary thinks that you could at any time, and so that that's a very dangerous dynamic to have. And that's one thing that's in this movie a lot is the the sort of threat of war could happen. Very, very, very easily. Yeah, that was uh, that was called mutually assured destruction, based off of the theory of deterrence. 
That's why the United States and Soviet Union were always beefing up their nuclear arsenals because they wanted to make sure that the other one wouldn't pull the trigger first because as soon as the trigger gets pulled, there goes the rest of the world. Well, and that's what's at play here is that that isn't even enough at this point. When when the Cold War heats up enough and someone thinks that an imminent nuclear attack is going to occur, the only strategy is what? Preempt that. And so you have to stop them first. And that's, that is not what you want to be going on in, in the Cold War. You want mutually assured destruction rather than, oh, they're going to attack us, we think. So let's preempt them and start a nuclear war that way. Yeah, and President Reagan was was not a fan of it. He likened mutually assured destruction to a suicide pact. That it just goes back to the fact that Reagan was a little bit initially green about nuclear issues, and he didn't quite totally understand the the dynamic. Uh, he actually hadn't attended those meetings for the first few years when the uh, when the intelligence community and the military gets together and they did dry runs, like run-throughs of what a nuclear war would entail and what steps to take. And I had a political science professor who actually was in this kind of a job where they said, okay, who's if this occurs in a nuclear war scenario, what is the response and what do we hit and all this? And it was very uh, theoretically based and, and it was very trying to do it logically based too. It was actually kind of a scary field to be in once you actually think about that on a daily basis. But uh, Reagan did not attend these meetings initially. And I think only after he attended these meetings, after this heat up of the Cold War occurred, did he re absolutely just, he was reviled by nuclear weapons and he was quite scared at, at just how ugly things could get so quickly. One of the things that uh, came out of it is he realized that the Russians, quote, feared us not only as adversaries, but as potential aggressors who might hurl nuclear weapons at them in a first strike. Interestingly, I guess this shouldn't be surprising given that Ronald Reagan uh, was an actor in Hollywood for, for many years. He saw a television film called The Day After that really, it really got to him because uh, it was about a small town in the United States the day after a nuclear holocaust. He wrote in his diary that it, quote, left me greatly depressed. Yes, and, and, and that's the reaction he should have had. You know, if anybody's human, they're going to react that way. But uh, it, just thinking of a nuclear holocaust on someone else's individual level really brings the, the true horror of it right home because that's the end of everything. And it's hard for our brains to imagine numbers that are really high or things that are as big as the planet. It is hard for us to think in the terms of billions of things versus trillions of things, or, and, and just large numbers like this, but also scales. It's harder for our brains to think on scales of this kind because it is an Earth worldwide scale problem and a disaster. It would be a worldwide disaster. But this movie really goes into a lot about how paranoia can affect decision-making and just how living in the cold war was like it, it was just like the the children hiding under the desks and that's the dynamic of the cold war really either side could completely blow up the other side and you'd be caught in it and there's nothing you can do and there's a the, the cold war was a lot of people being resigned to 
just having to deal with this realization on their daily life. And it's not something you want to have to go through, really. But this this is what was going on in Japan with uh, things being so tense during the Cold War. There were a handful of things that uh, that led to the paranoia that contributed to Abel Archer. Uh, one being Operation Ryan, which was an extensive Soviet intelligence gathering program started in 1981. It charged Russian agents abroad to monitor those who could initiate a nuclear attack, personnel who could launch the attack, and facilities where the attack could originate. The goal was to detect the intent of a strike. Then there were also what were called PSYOPs, or psychological operations, where American naval vessels and military aircraft would fly as close as possible to Soviet territory before breaking away to test their radar range and look for gaps. Operation Ryan was built entirely off of Soviet paranoia. It's all about, they're going to attack. Let's assume that they're going to attack. We just need to get advanced plans for where and when and how to try to stop it. If you're in Japan, you're familiar with this kind of thing because uh, it is being done regularly by Chinese aircraft in the Senkaku Islands region and elsewhere. Also, if you're American, you also understand this because of uh, Russian military planes buzzing our uh, naval vessels, among other uh, acts. And it is to to find weak spots and to make sure that, you know, and when you, and you have to respond to these kinds of things because you want to demonstrate to them that what, that you can meet that threat and repel it. And so this is a, a sort of game of chicken that's going on back and forth. And it does, uh, over time especially, it antagonizes the other uh, side for sure. And then along those lines, you had what was called Fleet X-83. On April 4th, 1983, six aircraft flew over Zelany Island to provoke a response from the Soviets and test their radar maneuvers and tactics. And then the Soviets responded with flyovers on the Aleutian Islands. Yeah, so this is a tit-for-tat going on. And this is this kind of thing really between the Soviet Union and the United States has gone on for decades by the time we got to the 80s. All of these things are just, uh, it's like one more antagonizing thing on the, on the plate. And so we're, we're stacking things up at this point. There was also a false alarm detected by the Soviet's orbital missile early warning system, which was called SPURN. And it was codenamed OCO. It detected a ballistic missile launch from the U.S., but the technician on duty dismissed it as a computer error. A later investigation revealed it was due to a malfunction caused by a rare by rare weather conditions. If, what was the reasoning? That, oh, it's just one. Of course, they wouldn't just send one over. Then I thought, well, <laughs> thanks. You logically thought it out. Good. <laughs> We're also talking about a massive weapons buildup. Uh, during the Reagan administration, including the announcement of what was called the Strategic Defense Initiative, or it was nicknamed Star Wars by uh, by the media. A lot of people think that actually got started by Senator Ted Kennedy because he was criticizing it, calling it Star Wars schemes. NATO's deployment of Pershing-2 missiles into Western Europe to counter Soviet SS-20 missiles along the Soviet border. The Star Wars stuff I find particularly interesting because the, it, a lot of it involved creating orbital la oh, lasers and particle cannons, even projectiles and missiles that could intercept ICBMs after they were launched. 
I find that I find that interesting because that's what what do we have in this? We have orbital nuclear platforms in this, which honestly is a little bit of a terrifying concept. the The Soviets had toyed around with with stuff like this back in the '60s with a with a program called FOBS, which was the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System. Their goal was to put ICBMs into low orbit and then let them drop onto their target. It allowed them to expand their range, and they could uh, attack North America going over the South Pole. That was the opposite direction than NATO's early warning system was was oriented to detect them. They eventually abandoned it because the system, the accuracy wasn't very good and the missiles would come down at, at low angles. So it just wasn't effective. But then what happened was there was the what was called the Outer Space Treaty in 1967, which actually outlawed the military militarization of space. And it was throwing nukes all over a bunch of orbiting uh, platforms, vessels, what have you. Yeah. Yeah. And there was installations. Yeah, and there was actually uh, some debate in uh, those who were criticizing SDI were arguing that it somehow violated this, while those were being arguments were being countered by them saying, "Oh, it's in too low of an orbit to be covered by the treaty," and and all of these things. But in a lot of ways, SDI, even though it was developing technology that found its way into other uses and purposes. In a lot of ways, it seems like it kind of operated a little bit as, as a bluff because it, it was one of these things that the United States could hold over the Soviets to keep them scared in a lot of ways. And some Russian commentators have looked back on it and likened SDI to being like an economic war because it forced the Soviet Union to spend extra money on defense so they were hoping that the Soviet Union would then spend itself to death. And SDI technology like this, this, this didn't get good immediately. No. It didn't get accurate immediately, and this wasn't something that you could just perfect and just have in the air in a couple of years. No, it was mostly just a lot of research, a lot of ideas were getting thrown around. So I can see why, when it came time to to write the screenplay for this movie, that you would include something like that it would have been very much on people's minds that's why you have the the orbital nuclear platforms that both countries have well and then if you're just watching this from a layperson's point of view you have the cold war on top of you already and then it's like oh great the cold war is going to go into space now this all messed around with mutually assured destruction because if you have an anti-ballistic missile system in place what can you do then you can block a whole, a large amount at least, of a nuclear attack. And so you're, that way, if there was an, a, a functioning SDI system that the United States had, mutually assured destruction would be thrown out the window. And so that you're imbalancing things more than you're actually balancing them. The Soviets were a bit unnerved by SDI, but they tried to cover it up by saying that if you introduce this technology, it's just to guarantee that nuclear war is going to happen. There is also the idea that when you threaten the Soviets with an SDI system like this, you're giving them more pressure to actually give up developing more weapons, not only because they can't spend the money on it, but also just psychologically. It's kind of a psychological effect that you have when you're touting new technology to try to thwart them with that they don't have a clue about how to get get you know created yet 
so what did the Pershing missiles do to the equation this time? It increased a lot of, of tension because they were moved right up to the border. And so we're increasing the range that, that nuclear missiles can go into the Soviet Union proper. Yeah. Because the Soviet Union was stationing these weapons in the Warsaw Pact countries of Eastern Europe. And so we were placing the Pershing missiles in uh, uh, all of the bases in Western Europe. And so actions like the Able Archer exercise and moving the Pershing missiles around, that was a way to get a tactical advantage of first strike. You know, the idea of neutralizing the Soviet Union through a nuclear action and not getting hit back yourself. And you don't want somebody thinking that you're going to first strike them, just like you probably wouldn't want to conduct a first strike in the first place. But if you have an enemy that is concerned that you are trying to get a first strike, then what is the only remedy to that? For them to do the same thing. And then it's like the, you know, the red buttons down the hallway and there are two guys at the end and you know, they're both jostling each other trying to get to see who pushes the button first. So about Able Archer. This was a command post exercise carried out by NATO from November 7th to 11th, 1983. It was meant to simulate conflict escalation culminating in a DEFCON 1 nuclear strike. And starting with chemical weapons usage. Yeah. Because this particular exercise included a greater level of realism, including coded messages, radio silences, and the involvement of government leaders around the world, I might add. And with relations between the U.S. and USSR already deteriorating, the Soviets believed this was a ruse of war and put their forces in East Germany on high alert. They really thought this was a real thing. It was not an exercise. Yes, this genuinely scared them. Yeah. And I can totally understand why, especially with this, just how deep the this, this simulation went. There aren't really any Soviet sources that talk about Abel Archer, which has led some historians to think that that's a sign that the, the Soviets didn't think Abel Archer presented that much of a threat. On the other hand, we have a Soviet double agent named Oleg Gordievsky, who was at one point resident in London, and he's the only Soviet source to report anything about Abel Archer. He and many other Warsaw Pact agents were skeptical of a NATO first strike because they were close to the West and they understood where those the Western nations were coming from. However, Soviet agents were ordered to report their observations and not their analyses, which fed the Soviet Union's fear of U.S. aggression. Seems like a little bit of an oversight, honestly. I would actually want some analysis of things as opposed to just telling me what you see happening. Because everything's about intention with, with something like this. And so when you see somebody taking unprecedented measures what in what may be a drill or what might not be a drill, then that becomes a huge issue. Yeah, it's just still I would think that you're missing part of the story at that Absolutely. point. Yeah, and it just seems like a mistake on the Soviets' part to tell their agents to do that. And it, I think it just goes back to them being completely old school and very paranoid. So during this exercise, which wasn't, it lasted a few days, 
-hmm. What happened was is that the Soviet Union readied their nuclear arsenal because they got that paranoid about it, because they noticed too many outstanding different things happening with communications and with uh, military movements. And so they were actually so afraid that they were almost ready to conduct a first strike themselves. And so this was what catapulted us almost to as close of a place to nuclear war as what uh, could have happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And then at the end of all this, President Reagan thought, how could they actually have thought that we were going to do that? I have no idea why, why they think that. And that was the huge disconnect that had been revealed as a result of, of this massive increase in tensions was that, wait, they actually thought we were going to do that? Wow. Suddenly we find out that the Soviets were actually scared to death of what we possibly could have done. Moving on to the Korean Airlines Flight 007, uh, I don't know if maybe other people who are listening to this get a big excitement about this, but the, all of those uh, specials on, on like the documentaries about all the plane crashes and all this and how they got caused and what the technical thing was and what wasn't repaired correctly and uh, all these different reasons for why this happens. I think people are uh, very intrigued about plane crashes and all that. And you, even though I, I get into a plane, I'm fine. I don't think about that at all. Uh, I know that plane crashes are so, the chance of it happening is so minute. It's way safer than if you got in your car and started driving around. I mean, that's the way I've always looked at it. But this was something that was one of those super extraordinary cases. But this begins just like one of those documentaries where they mess up the the two different kinds of navigation and then they start going off course gradually but the problem is is that they were going off course gradually into the soviet union airspace and over the kamchatka peninsula which is that's absolutely the wrong thing that could possibly happen and of course the the pilot and the co-pilot did not realize that they were off course and so then they started being monitored and then because we're already in a very tense period between the U.S. and the USSR, this gets just put into overdrive with this very conspicuous plane that ends up on there, and they don't know what it's doing, and so they have to figure out what it is. This actually probably could have been avoided, because the local technicians in that area who were supposed to be repairing the radar didn't, and they lied to Moscow about it. If they had been doing their job and had not lied, the radar probably would have been operational and they would have identified this as a civilian aircraft about two hours sooner. Right. there, And this, that's just like every other uh, airplane crash documentary. If this hadn't happened, if this wasn't the, the circumstance, then everything would have been fine. Yeah. But the, the Soviets honestly thought that this was a spy plane. There were fighters that were scrambled. And uh, our, the fighter pilot that shot the plane down, he realized that it was a Boeing aircraft and that there were blinking lights on the sides and everything. But he didn't tell the, his superiors that it was a Boeing plane. And he said, well, they didn't ask. And then uh, he, they could have made radio contact with the plane. That would, have, that would have explained the reason for what's going on. Then the pilots would have been like, oh, yeah, we're in Soviet airspace. We need to figure out why that happened and then get out of here and get back on course. There was also the warning shots that he fired because he, there weren't, he, there's no way that anybody would have seen those. It was night. 
and there there weren't any there wasn't any incendiary aspect to the ammunition that was being fired and so that was useless too but yeah there are a lot of things that could have caused this to not happen they could have been a lot more careful too themselves but the the paranoia i think was it might have been what did it so what happened the the missiles there's it was two air to air missiles they blew up outside of the back of the plane and then that probably what they say is it depressurized mm-hmm. the entire cabin and then it was something about possibly the the nose of the plane and the front of it was broken up and then the back of it was also broken up so it created maybe some sort of wind tunnel massive wind tunnel out of the plane and it gave apparently the passengers had enough time to put their oxygen masks on and the period between when the missile hit the plane and when the plane crashed, it was 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. Whereas that's a pretty long time yeah. to have to uh, be through that emotionally suffering period of time. And, and one reason why there weren't a lot of bodies found was because they were you know, fl- being flown out of, ejected out of the plane the whole time that the plane was trying to regain uh, airworthiness. The plane finally crashed near Monoran Island, which is in the Sea of Japan. And there were 269 people, passengers and crew, aboard, including, I might add, 28 Japanese and 62 Americans. One of them a congressman who is in charge of the John Birch Society, which mm-hmm. is an anti-communist group, which like really puts the icing on the cake with this kind of, a, kind of an incident. And something I was thinking about when I was looking this up is I can understand why tensions escalated with this because i was thinking back to world war one and the lusitania Mm -hmm. yeah where the germans a german sub sank the lusitania and there were 128 americans aboard it and that eventually led to the united states getting into world war one yes very late into world war one but they finally did yeah yeah so this is the kind of thing wars start up get started over uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh-huh It was also terrible PR for the Soviets well, all the way around. It didn't matter because they had eventually, uh, what was it, five days later? Like, yeah. They didn't even say they took did them five days before they acknowledged, yeah, we yeah. shot it down. And then they finally acknowledged it. And, you know, when, you, when you've done that, it's even worse when you've said you didn't. And then five days later, you fess up to the whole world community and you realize it. To, uh, to add uh, just a little bit more tension to everything, South Korea, since they were the, the owner of the aircraft immediately uh, immediately named the United States and Japan as search and salvage agents, which made it illegal for the Soviet Union to salvage anything from the aircraft, assuming it wasn't found in Soviet territory. And then that made the United States legally entitled to use force against the Soviets, if necessary, to prevent them from retrieving anything from it. Because of treaty yeah. obligations, yeah. And so it's already creating more tension. But the thing is, it did fall in international waters. And yet the Soviets did not tell us the location of the crash. And they even set up a fake res- search and rescue effort to throw us off. Yeah. Well, it doesn't help that it's very difficult to determine territorial borders in open water, first off. And the Soviets also found the flight recorders. So the Soviets hid a lot of things about this. And obviously they had a reason to, too. It was because they did it, and and this was all on them, really. And for a while after this, you have four countries, the Soviet Union, the United States, Korea, and Japan, 
all sending ships out to do search and rescue and then eventually salvage operations to find uh, to find debris from the plane and bodies and all of that and nobody coordinated anything with anybody at this point especially the soviets so there was constant tension between all of them if they if they ran into each other and they're hounding one another and just all kinds of things they wouldn't share information just nothing <laughs> which only i think made things that much tenser for everybody involved and but what's interesting though is most of the things that any of them were finding were they would find some some debris they would find personal belongings they found a lot of clothing weirdly enough they were able to identify a lot of people by shoes they would find shoes and then they would bring those in and then f- family members from the passenger for the passengers would identify people based on the shoes president reagan was not very kind to the soviet union after this uh he condemned what happened as quote the korean airline massacre and quote a crime against humanity that must never be forgotten and quote an act of barbarism and inhuman brutality those are some strong words right there and there were some pretty serious consequences for uh, for the Soviet Union after this. In what I guess some would say is a little bit of turnabout being fair play, Reagan had the FAA revoke the license of the Aeroflot Soviet Airlines to operate flights in the United States. Now, they could still land in Canada and in Mexico, but they couldn't come into the United States. And that actually forced a Soviet foreign minister to cancel his scheduled trip to the UN. <laughs> yeah, because he couldn't. He couldn't, he couldn't get it. there. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least not easily. And that remained in place for three years. Yeah, this was a punishment for what was a very, very huge mistake, a uh, cause of a significant human tragedy. That I'm sure they, uh, if they had to do it over again, that they would not have done this. Mm-hmm. And then on September 12, 1983. The Soviet Union had to use its veto power to block a UN resolution condemning it for shooting down the aircraft. Yeah, since they have veto power, they can do whatever they want in that department, but it it doesn't matter. You know, it's the the fact that they were forced to veto it is, is even more of an indictment on them. And as you would imagine, this incident in particular was one of the things that catapulted the anti-Soviet sentiment around the world but especially in the united states yes this was a very very like i said very bad pr for the soviet union especially with the united states but also uh south korea and other nations that uh of the people who died in the incident we bring this up because we we think this was probably the inspiration for Godzilla attacking the Soviet submarine, which creates an international incident that the Soviets take quite a bit of umbrage with. It's just that it's juxtaposed and and reversed a little bit, where it, in this case it's the the Soviets who are the victims, as opposed to uh, an aircraft near U.S. Soviet territory. And this is one of the opening events in the movie. And it, it catapults everything into a, a much more serious situation as the movie goes on. And then it's Japan that ends up completely clearing the United States from wrongdoing, but only because they released the secret information about the fact that Godzilla did it 
because oh yeah, Godzilla exists now. And so they and it that is also related to how the United States in order to pin everything on the Soviets, we gave out information from spy planes and everything else that showed where the Korean aircraft was. And so we had, so it's, that's another interesting parallel is that Japan had to release secret information in order to absolve the United States of wrongdoing. While uh, in real life, it was the United States divulging information that was beforehand secretly collected in order to uh, get all of the data possible about the, uh, the shooting down of the uh, aircraft. And also keep in mind, the, the Soviets' immediate reaction was that it was the United States that did this, which parallels uh, this event that we're, uh, that we're talking about because all during the search and salvage operations, each side was constantly trying to pin the other for blame. In 1979, we had the worst nuclear accident in the history of the United States, and that was the Three Mile Island uh, accident that occurred in Pennsylvania. And this is relevant because this accident was part of the inspiration for producer Tomoyuki Tanaka to revive the Godzilla franchise and get it back to its anti-nuclear roots. Because this event uh, galvanized the anti-nuclear movement especially in the United States, but also all over the world, because it demonstrated how nuclear power plants can have uh, very critical problems occur without as much protection and safety as was necessary. After reading about this, I realized nuclear power is really expensive, especially in this case. Yeah. (laughs) Because the Three Mile Island facility was commissioned in 1974 for Unit 1 and 1970. Eight for Unit 2, and Unit 2 is where the accident occurred. And so December 30th, 1978 was when it came online, and then the nuclear accident occurred March 28th, 1979. So that's three months in service. Oops. The total construction cost for both units was $1.5 billion, and then the cleanup for the accident was a billion and then $2.4 billion in property damage for a unit that was on this long. The cleanup operation for this accident lasted 14 years. Three months in service, 14 years cleaning up after it. Yeah, and, a, and billions of dollars. And so it's a, yeah, this wasn't a very good cost-to-benefit ratio for this facility by any means. The facility is actually going to be closed down in 2019 at least it's planned for that yeah one reactor has already been shut down and then the other one was originally intended to stay in operation in some form or another until about 2034 but because of financial pressures and such they're they're gonna apparently shut it down in 2019 and part of that is because natural gas is so cheap and so there's just it's extremely hard to compete with, with the natural gas industry at this point Related to the actual error that, that took place, the, the, the gist of it is, is that the instruments that were telling people what was going on were not clear, and then they were also not understood correctly. And so the problem lasted way longer than it should have. And then finally, when the replacement staff came in for the next shift, they were like, oh, you just do this and that and the other. What in the, what in the world did you guys do? 
Nothing? Oh, well, we, we didn't think that that was doing that well. Clearly, you weren't looking at it right. And, and so it was uh, it, it was human error uh, for the uh, vast majority of this that caused it. With a little bit of mechanical failure. Mm-hmm. And just failure to diagnose the problem was, yeah. I think, the, the biggest issue. Poor training on the part of, th- of those who were working in the facility at the time. And instruments that could have been a little more clear. Because this is a nuclear reactor, it is very complex. You, you want to have uh, indicators and buttons and lights and stuff that, that show exactly what in the world is going on in your nuclear power plant when you build it. Yeah, especially since you do one thing wrong and the results are a bit catastrophic. Yeah, such as melting down half of the uranium that is at the facility, which was uh, really bad. It's amazing how there wasn't a massive release of this radioactivity when the accident occurred. It is very much a, a, cl- a very close call. And that's, I think that's what galvanized the nuclear movement. The anti-nuclear movement is that look, look at what all happened, but look at what could have happened. This was a close call and, and we, we, it could have been way, way worse. And so this drove home just how volatile the, these were, these nuclear plants. Yeah, Brian. In fact, in New York City, in uh, September of 79, there were over 200,000 people who gathered for an anti-nuclear demonstration. Speeches were given by Jane Fonda and Ralph Nader, and it was held in conjunction with a series of nightly, quote, no-nukes concerts at Madison Square Garden from September 19th to 23rd by Musicians United for Safe Energy. And this sounds quite a lot like the the uh, protests that happened in Japan after the detonation of uh, Council Bravo. Yeah. And also in May of 79, there was an estimated 65,000 people, including, I might add, California Governor Jerry Brown, who attended a march and rally against nuclear power in Washington, D.C. So there was a huge outpouring of anti-nuclear sentiment in the United States this time. I mean, we're used to seeing it in Japan with what we've been talking about in this podcast, but then we had some of it here in this country. Yeah, and this also, it really reduced the desirability for more plants to be built in the United States. This was what threw cold water all over that because throughout the uh, 1970s, nuclear power plants were a popular thing. They were being built a lot more, and but this really uh, threw a wrench in the whole process for getting new ones to be built because there haven't been very many new ones built in the United States uh, after this, after this happened. Think of it like this. From 1963 to 1979, except for 1971 and 1978, the number of nuclear power plants being commissioned and built in the United States was increasing. And then it dropped dramatically starting in 1980 through 1998. In fact, 51 reactors were canceled just between 1980 and 1984. Wow. The U.S. nuclear industry was growing exponentially at this point but then it got halted by the accident as you might expect in 1979 129 nuclear plants were planned but only 53 which weren't in operation were completed and then in subsequent years federal requirements to correct safety issues and design deficiencies became more stringent local Opposition became more strident, and construction times were significantly lengthened, and then and costs skyrocketed. 
it wasn't until 2012 that a new nuclear power plant was authorized for construction. Yeah. That long. It made the process a lot more expensive to build them uh, along with all, all this other effects that it had. And so it, it really changed the nuclear industry a great deal. I think probability is what explains a lot of the problems with, with nuclear plants is because it's hard to make the probability of something to go wrong zero. And then when something does go wrong, the chances of things of it being really bad is quite high. And also the, the, there's all of these numbers uh, when we look up nuclear plants about, well, it's a, it's one in so many tens of thousands uh, every year that says that an earthquake seismic activity or an earthquake under a nuclear power plant could threaten the power plant itself. And you don't want it to be in the tens of thousands, right? You want it to be more than that. And so it's uh, nuclear power plants can be a liability just because of just random chance. Yeah, it seems like nuclear power plants are in a lot of ways, kind of like airplanes, there's, it's supposed to be a safe form of energy, but then on those rare occasions where something goes wrong, it goes very, very wrong. Yeah, and yeah, there are dire consequences. Of people getting killed. And, yeah. Yeah. And so it, be, it becomes this big event that everyone is paying attention to. And it makes everyone stop and rethink everything. And nuclear power plants are just so utterly complex. And then problem solving becomes unbelievably complex and and the more complex something is the more unsustainable it can be and the more things you can that that can be done to make it not work right looking at this accident and realizing that it was part of what inspired tanaka to bring godzilla back and go back to its roots you can see that evidenced a little bit in this because what happens we have godzilla attacking a nuclear power plant. And there's a lot of stuff going on now in Japan related to nuclear power plants, especially in light of Fukushima. So I feel feel like in a lot of ways, this movie was a little bit ahead of its time bringing up the nuclear power plant issue because that's what's bringing, at least initially, what is bringing Godzilla to Japan. The other thing that this got really ahead of time was just by two years was because Chernobyl happened in 1986, which was far, 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 far worse than the three mile, three mile Island incident ever was. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's a scale that's used to, to rate nuclear accidents. I think it goes from a scale of one to seven. Three mile Island was a five. Chernobyl was a seven. Yeah. But it was like a really, really high seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, related to nuclear power plants, there actually are no power plants that are nuclear in Indiana at all, in our, in our state. We, uh, there were actually two nuclear plants that were planned. Uh, one was unfinished, and it was uh, half-finished when it was stopped. And that uh, $2.5 billion uh, was uh, sunk into that project. Then there was another proposed power plant, and that was uh, canceled in 1981, which was probably one of those ones, many yeah. ones that mm-hmm. were canceled. And so we don't even have any nuclear power plants in the state. There are a number of ones that other states have around us. So there actually isn't a single one here. I doubt that there will be just because there are so few of them being built at this point. Yeah. Hey, Brian, have you ever seen the movie, the China syndrome? 
I actually still have not, although one of my favorite actors, Jack Lemmon, is in it. I haven't seen it either. Uh, maybe we should watch it together sometime. But it, what's interesting is that movie opened uh, a week or two before three, the Three Mile Island accident, and it's about a nuclear power plant accident. Yeah. I mean, this is really amazing that there aren't very many instances where a movie about something drops and then the thing that, it, that the movie is talking about actually happens yeah, that it, shortly after. It, it's a little bit freaky. In fact, uh, ironically, we, we mentioned that Jane Fonda was uh, part of the anti-nuclear movement that spawned off of this. She starred in the movie. And I'm pretty sure she used that to her advantage. Say, hey, look, I was in a movie about this. You should pay attention to me. Mm -hmm. I think that galvanized the movement more. It was because everybody thought, okay, let's go see the movie now. And because this just happened in real life, let's go see the movie. And it's like, wow, that's eerie. Uh, I'm sure the, the everyone involved in the movie was a, a little bit appreciative of that, but they probably would have preferred that it came under better circumstances. Yeah, but the, the protests did have an impact, just like all the protests after Fukushima in uh, Japan. They had a, a big impact because a lot of the power plants have not been restarted uh, to this day, and there is very significant uh, court cases, uh, political battles yeah. that, that are taking place over restarting these plants. Well, and there were lots of legal and uh, illegal battles going on with this immediately afterward. Insurance companies are paying out millions in compensation and, and it's just all kinds class of class action suits. Class that action suits filed yeah. and then they couldn't talk about what happened to them. Yeah, it was it was just crazy. Yeah. yeah, it was just crazy. Just the amount of backlash i guess you could say that came out of this in many different forms as uh, as it tends to do it's probably the closest thing that we in the united states have experienced to uh, the 311 disasters in japan yeah that too um nuclear power plants are also a liability in i i guess it, we've been talking about nuclear war games and stuff uh nuclear power plants are often the targets of a uh, nuclear bombs too because they they power cities and because you'd be spreading even more radiation and disaster and stuff onto the uh the unsuspecting uh, country that you were bombing and so a lot of these plants are a liability in that respect too and, and of course terrorist attacks yada 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 weather disasters earthquakes uh tsunami if you're in japan and any uh nuclear plants that are on the coasts there's a lot of risk huge amount of risk associated with uh, with nuclear power plants. I think it, they're at, at, a, at the time that they started being built, I, I, they were really viewed as the, the clean power of the future, and now it's just uh, a lot of a mess. Yeah, uh, I think this incident really gave a lot of people a pause for concern and really made them stop and think about these things a little bit more and weigh the, the cost and uh, benefits more so than they probably would have before this. And then Chernobyl happened, and then nobody needed to argue anything about how unsafe nuclear power was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, Chernobyl kind of dwarfed this particular accident. I mean, I still... And it vindicated this movie, too, and its anti-nuclear stance, and uh, just how dangerous things are. And it definitely vindicated the China Syndrome again, as did Fukushima and, and all, these other, uh, all these other incidents that have occurred. 
one reason why this movie was purportedly made was because so much time had passed, 30 years in between the original film and this one, and it was about getting the Japanese public to not forget. Because if you did you run into this? That the creators of the film were... That's why they brought back a standard original Godzilla movie like this. Interesting. In order to, yeah, in order to get the public to realize, oh yeah, even though we've come this far along after the war ended, this brought back the old style Godzilla that would that damaged everything and that was angry. And this brought back the 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 more visceral parts of Godzilla about disasters and and just the the nuclear bomb. Yes. And this was a, this was a movie to make the public more sober about these issues because the war wasn't, it didn't happen that long ago. And so you still need to instill that feeling into a new generation of people, especially in the era that it was, that it was made when you had a lot of heightened tension when Japan was finding itself a little bit more involved in the cold war because you had the the prime minister in this having to stand up for those Japan those principles that are very distinctly Japanese against a lot of international pressure and against those who were, were telling them that they were not only in the wrong but that they were arrogant for such ideas and yeah the, it was principles weren't realistic yeah and that it, it just wasn't the time. That's what the American was saying. This isn't the time to talk about principles. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to think about the immediate problem at hand. But I'm sure the prime minister is thinking, I don't want to be the guy who authorizes another bomb to be dropped on Japan. Yeah, I don't want they, that. That's why they had that scene. And it was, to, it was to bring the gravity of the whole situation home. And this whole movie was a way to remind the public of this is where we stand and this is where we should stand. And it's a very nationalist film in that respect. It it very much, it gets the idea across uh, of what Japanese values are in a time of crisis. And it did. And it reminds all of the Japanese viewers that yes, we did go through that. And it, and it was a while ago now, but we still remember it and we're still going to forge ahead based on the ideals that came out of the, of the terrible tragedy of the war and the bombings and all the suffering. Which is something that I will confess to you is that's a theme that, that really resonates with me seeing characters who stand by their principles, regardless of the amount of pressure that's being put on them you can see that, and that's a theme that you can see reflected in uh, personal stories. You can see that reflected in comic book stories, action stories, but you can also see it in stuff like this that's more about political drama. You can see it on a national scale because essentially the prime minister is speaking on behalf of his nation and saying, This is where we stand as a nation, and we will not waver from it. He's probably one of the most heroic politicians I've ever seen in a movie. Too, because usually the movies view politicians through a realistic <laughs> view, but this time around, a very cynical yeah, lens. There's no cynical anything with the with this prime minister. 
Uh, he is he is he does act quite heroic. And again, we have a movie that is psychological healing through disaster. This is just like the just like the first movie, where where we have a new Tokyo, a new Japan that has been uh, that is now being destroyed by Godzilla again, and and so we're bringing home the whole don't forget thing too with this as well. It's pretty indisputable also that the military and politicians are looked at in a much more positive light in this movie. And this is a hundred percent different from hetero, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was probably the nadir of military competence and ability Mm -hmm. and the view of it. And so we've come full circle now where instant and like, 80, 1954, that film, it didn't have a very, it was rather ambiguous on what people thought of the military. Mm-hmm. But this time around, the military is effective. It has leadership. Even though they still get destroyed and all that, they're trying their hardest. Yeah, they're still completely outmatched. Uh-huh. But there's, it's a lot more positive light uh, on the military and of politicians that are in charge of the country. It is a patriotic in that respect and it's it's more i guess nationalistic if you would want to use a word um it, it's not uh nobody's worshiping the military here clearly but we definitely have come a long way from the 1960s and 70s films that really uh the military is not looked at as uh as as much of a positive force the volcano in this movie uh, it didn't erupt really right before this, but there is a volcano that did erupt and it was uh, Mount Oyama and it erupted in 1983, which is a uh, very close to this. And so I'm not sure if uh, it was also a, a volcano that was in the Izu Island chain as well. So uh, it, it was very close to the, the mountain that the volcano that Godzilla actually goes into. But uh, I think maybe this vo- this volcanic eruption on Mount Oyama that might have been the the impetus for the uh, volcanic eruption in the movie. And interestingly, Mount Mihara did erupt in real life two years after the movie was released. Economically, the Japanese were doing extremely well all during the period in between Terror of Mechagodzilla and today's movie from 1975 to 1984. The GDP of Japan in 1975 was about half a trillion dollars. By the time we got to 1984, $1.29 trillion. And so GDP has more than doubled in this period of time. That is astonishing. Economic growth in uh, 1975 was 3% and then 4.5% almost in 84. Uh, The bigger the number gets it doesn't matter as much what the percentage increase is, but the the higher the percentage increase with a big number, that's when you have even larger growth. And all throughout the 1980s, the economy of Japan is really, really growing and adding on. And we aren't getting as high of percentages, but the amount of economic growth in that percentage is massively high. It just wouldn't be an episode of Kaiju Vision Radio without Japanese economic figures, listeners. One prelude to our next movie, in 1977, Japan agreed to what was called the Orderly Marketing Arrangements. And what it did was it limited exports on products 
that was that were causing political problems in the U.S. because of the influx into the the United States economy, and this was stuff like color TVs, steel, and textiles, and it was because the competition in the United States was getting hurt because of these products coming in, and so it was creating. Uh, political tensions and political problems over the issue of trade. And this is something that we will see in the future as we discuss these movies uh, during the 90s. Dovetailing with that, in 1980, the U.S. trade deficit to Japan reached $10 billion a year. Oh my. So there is a large, starting to be a large amount of money coming from the United States into Japan in the form of a trade deficit. And so that has also increased a little bit of tensions over that period of time leading up to this movie. Our next episode should be very different because this is a very different movie. We're going back to an American version of a Godzilla movie. Yep, the heavily edited Americanized version of this film entitled Godzilla 1985. Which Pro- is from the year 1985, in case you were wondering. Yeah, in case you were wondering. Brought to us courtesy of a little studio called New World Pictures. Thank you, Roger Corman. In case you don't know who Roger Corman is, uh, look up some of his uh, wonderful films that he has released over the years. I'm being facetious. I watch Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> it is a very radically different movie, to say the least. It is. Uh, I very much like this version better. And so we'll uh, explore Godzilla 1985 and uh, just see what we can make out of it. It should be a fun episode. In a very MST3K sort of way, I'm sure. We'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Kiyoe Toshi and Sean Stiff, for pledging at the Kaiju Visionary level. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara. Sayonara.